I've got a multiple choice for you. Multiple choice? A, B, C, D? Uh, A, B, C. A, B, C. Okay, B. Is that okay? Ma- well, no, you don't know what the choice is. It's always oh, yeah. B. <laughs> uh, in this case, it might be B. Right, three things. <laughs> three things that happened yesterday. Right. All of which are true. Yes. Which for you came as the biggest surprise, okay? So it'll be oh, A, right. B or C. Well, now I have right? no choice. It's going to have to be whatever you put as B. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm not going to change my order. I'm not changing my order, okay? Okay. A, the first thing that happened yesterday that is true. Nadal defending US Open champion, pulling out of the US Open. That's A. Right. Okay. B, after a couple of days of rumours and apparently Novak Djokovic telling players on a WhatsApp group, the Madrid Masters was officially cancelled. Right. B, C, I did not eat any baguettes yesterday. (laughs) Which of those came as the biggest surprise to you? Is that all true? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Well, then C, to be honest. <laughs> that is impressive. I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> and you know what? For me, it, it's C as well, because Rafa Nadal has, has stated for a few weeks now, hasn't he, that he hasn't been yes. comfortable with the situation. And and he said it's it's about, it is, they are reasons to do with, with safety. He just He just doesn't want to travel. He said the situation is very complicated worldwide. The COVID cases are increasing. It looks like we still don't have control of it. And for the time being, I'd rather not travel. And I think if you were a betting person, you probably would have put a fair amount on the fact that he wasn't going to defend his title. Yes. And we yeah, we, we kind of known that for a while. But if you had said that sort of, if you had said in May that the list is going to come out and Rafa, okay, he's not the only top 10 player there, but we knew Federer mm-hmm. wasn't going to play, yep. but that Rafa would not be defending his title. I think that would have been quite surprising. Yeah, I, it's really, I think a big factor together with the COVID is the the change in rankings. So he yes. has, it sounds awful saying he's got nothing to gain because winning another Grand Slam is a huge thing to gain. But in terms of points, he cannot better what he did last year because he won it and he's allowed to take those points to go towards his ranking. Yeah, um, exactly. I'm not sure whether that would have been the decisive factor though. I'm I'm not sure. I, I feel kind of like if he wanted to win another slam and he was feeling even remotely comfortable with going, I think he would have at least put his name on the entry list and you can decide later. But I think that, and of course, Rafa Nadal can change surfaces as quickly as anybody. He's so experienced. He's so good. He's so proven. But with Roland Garros still in the calendar, still looming and all the history he has there, maybe it was a case of you've got the COVID situation and we still don't know. Look, will he come to Paris at the moment? He says he doesn't want to fly or go anywhere and we don't know how it's going to change. But he's looked at it and maybe thought that if he goes to the US, everything that would go into defending that title, would he harm his chances of winning another one at Roland Garros? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he'll either be going into Roland Garros totally down on match practice. One assumes he'd be able to play Rome beforehand, but it's just an assumption at this stage. Uh, Or he'd have to change surfaces quickly. So I don't know. And then if you think about as players get older, lack of match practice does become quite difficult. Well, it's kind of like it goes in a a sort of a a curve, doesn't it? Because once you get into your late 20s, you're really established like Federer, Serena, Djokovic, and they've been able to take massive gaps of time out and then just turn up and be absolutely fine. You know, Serena wouldn't play from the US Open to Australian Open and we'd win both. 
often. And <laughs> Federer's had lots of time out and he just kind of gets it back very quickly. Um, but we have seen as they've started pushing into sort of mid-30s, late-30s, that that actually has been quite a challenge um, and it's become more and more difficult. So, for example, Serena talked a lot about last year how she needs more matches. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard her say that before. Um, and Rafa last year on the clay, it took him a few tournaments to get going. Okay, he made some semifinals, but he lost in the semis of Monte Carlo and and those sorts of events. And it was Rome where he finally got a title, but it wasn't the Rafa that we normally see just kind of go ping, I'm on the clay, I'm going to win everything and off we go. <laughs> you know, and it's, it, it was a little bit of work for him. So that's definitely a consideration whether it's going to affect him just not having matches for such a long time. And you've talked about this in a previous pod and I'm, I believe I read something from Andy Murray recently, but changing surfaces is tricky enough as it is, but in terms of picking up injuries, it's the hardest. You're going from the hard to the clay courts and then you add into the fact you've hardly had any matches and the potential for injuries, I'm assuming, increases. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. The, the potential for injuries moving from surface to surface is always there. You have to be careful and, and manage it, but players are kind of used to it. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the potential for injuries playing best of five sets, having not played matches for such a long time is, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how people do pull up post US Open if they kind of go on a on a good run. It's tough to get that volume in practice wise. You know, if you have some epic best of five match for five hours or something, it's yeah, I don't know. That's can you play <laughs> two days later? I don't know. So that is definitely a thing. And also, it's I say it's almost like getting like hard skin on your hands or your feet. I think I was talking about this before. Whereas if, if you're, say, a, a rock climber, you kind of you keep ripping your hands up when you're climbing and then they get they recover and they get harder and harder and harder. So you, but you need that wear and tear. And if you don't climb for six months, your hands go back to being soft again. And I think for me, it's the same with kind of muscles, um, joints, everything. You need that slight bit of wear and tear, those slight niggles, the slight sort of rundown nature of your body, because that's where it's kind of strongest and it's used to all of the pressure that you're going to put through it. But if you if you stop, it just kind of becomes all soft and floppy. And it's not. It's, that's what I that meant. Sort of, that sort of put me off my train of thought a little bit. And <laughs> and practice isn't the same. You will still be soft and floppy. You need the competitive nature of playing matches to get hardened. Yes. Uh, no matter how competitive you get in practice, you just don't slam on the brakes as hard. You just don't try as hard. And a lot of it is about the tension you hold through your body. So you just don't carry that tension when you're playing practice sets. You could put a load of money on it. You could really want to kill the guy at the other end. But you are just not going to be nervous. You're not going to feel the big points like you would feel in a match they don't mean as much because okay so what if you don't win the big point it's not really a big deal um all of that so it's about your mind as well it's not in the same place but the body absolutely is just yeah it's it's not the same so for example when I was practicing um and I was hitting serves it was my coach David Felgate at the time if I ever missed a serve by um if I missed it long by a few centimeters he'd say oh that'd be it in a match and it was the same on the baseline when you're hitting from the back because you're just never going to yep. be as loose. You're going to have a little bit of tension. The ball won't quite travel as far. So you would always give yourself, I think probably six inches is possibly the maximum you could say that might go in in a, in a match. <laughs> um, but you do always give yourself a little bit of leniency, yeah. 
So we're expecting a lot of soft and floppy players to turn up at the oh, US Open. It sounds exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I'm not sure exciting. <laughs> sounds a little bit odd. But in, in terms of the US Open as things stand and things changing from not just day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. So we know there's no, no Nadal and no Barty. They are big blows for the US Open. And in terms of, well, I think... As things stand, the US Open would be quite happy. They've got 19 of the top 20 women and they've got 15 of the top 20 men. Yes, people can people can still pull out. So not playing at the moment, men, Nadal, Federer, Monfils, Fanini, Vavrinka, Nick Kyrgios, you did a little video. I mean, you did a whole video yeah. explaining, you know, I'm not going to be... A serious one as well. It's a very serious video. Um, Songer and Puy, Barty Wang, Pavlichenkova, Zheng... Gerges, uh, Potapova, Bogdan, Stoza, and Peng. Uh, there will be, there will be others, and that's for a mixture of being injured, a number of Australian players in there that don't want to travel. But in terms of as things stand, it is a pretty good lineup for the US Open. Oh, I think it's very strong. Yeah, I think it's really good. Obviously, you've got some players missing, but we normally have players missing due to injury or whatever it is. I don't think this is going to be some mega opportunity for um, somebody to win a slam that wouldn't have otherwise won it. If the entries stay as they are, if all of these players play, um, you've still got Djokovic there. You know, you've still got yeah, Grand Slam yeah. winners there. And the same with the women, you have 19 of the top 20. So it's not like, oh, you know, somebody's going to go on this massive run and kind of fluke a Grand Slam. I don't believe that. If they win it, then they were good enough to win it anyway. You know, the only person, as I say, from... from the US Open list that would really be stopping that would be would be Nadal, of course, defending champion. But okay, but he might have been injured on another year and he wasn't there, so that's that's how it goes. Um, I think it will be a big opportunity for players lower down the ranks, though, because this means that the cut is going to be significantly lower. Um, you know, I was talking to um, my friend Harriet Dart at Battle of the Brits. She's ranked 146, I think. The cut is normally kind of 110. Sometimes it goes down to like 114, that sort of thing. Um, but she's, I think she's maybe 19 out, 15 out. And, you know, okay. people might be pulling out as we go. So she's kind of got a chance of getting direct in to a Grand Slam, ranked 146. That never happens. That's never like, <laughs> so the opportunities for players ranked just outside the top 100 who would ordinarily have to come through qualifying and the players kind of ranked, 50 to 100 there there could be some opportunities i think to be making some good third round fourth round sort of situations that they otherwise wouldn't normally but in terms of who's going to win it if, to me looking at those lists that person would have won it anyway then the other side of things looking at the the wild cards especially on the wta side for cincinnati which is part of the us open bubble we're going to be working on it together back together working in the commentary box yes it's very in our exciting own bubble. in our own little bubble very exciting but Normally, there's an opportunity for people with a wild card. They're given it for whatever reason. Maybe it's to do with a management company or they're the next big thing, etc., etc. The WTA wild cards for Cincinnati, it's a who's who. Kim Kleisters, Naomi Osaka, Sloane Stephens and Venus Williams. I mean, there you go. I mean, the bar is set high. And I should add Katie McNally. I, I didn't put her in initially because just those first four, it, you know, it, it takes away opportunities from others. But wow, what players to have in your field? Yeah, no disrespect to Katie McNally, but just not quite the same league as not yet, not all yet. former US <laughs> Open champions. <laughs> so, I mean, she must be proud to be whacked on the list with them. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, I think 
that's it's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, Kim Clijsters be interesting. She's been doing a lot of practicing. She's yeah. been she's been hungry World for this comeback. She played she? well when she came back. Yeah, and then she played a bit of team tennis, looking pretty good. Maybe she'll be going on a, on a deep run. She knows how to do it. I can tell you that. Let me ask you a question. If you were a coach, so we know with the the U.S. Open, you can have a team of three. Originally, it was one, but it was extended to three. And I think the three can obviously be at the hotel with you, take the official transport if you're staying in a team hotel. But there are certain areas where you can only take one. So I think sort of sort of changing rooms within Flushing Meadows, it gets to a point when the other couple just have to wait outside. You could take one in with you. If you were a coach and for whatever reason you didn't have or couldn't afford to get pandemic insurance, your player wanted you to go to the US, would you go? Oh, uh, again, I think it's much like the players. It's totally up to you, really. Would you now, if you're in that situation as a oh, coach... Oh, you're saying with no with no insurance? If, if you don't have the pandemic insurance, for whatever reason, whether it's a cost thing, and your player wanted you to go... Would you go without that, knowing there is, knowing this is still out there? Oh, categorically not. No, no way. Even if it was an amazing opportunity, I don't know, say Harriet Dot asked you to go with her and you thought, wow, I can, and, and coaching was, was really what you wanted to do. You got a chance to go with a, with a top British player to be part of a Grand Slam. Would you take the risk? No. No, absolutely not. It's not worth it. I think people have got into trouble before out in the States without proper insurance. Things yeah. are really expensive. I remember once I, I had glandular fever and I went to get some blood tests and they said it was going to be like a few hundred dollars. And I was like, oh, don't worry about it then. <laughs> so I flew home. <laughs> I flew home and had the blood test done at home for free. And they were like, yeah, you've got glandular fever. So okay. <laughs> it just seemed ridiculous. Um, I mean, can you imagine if... if you know, something really bad happened and somebody ended up on a ventilator in hospital for weeks on end out in the States. I mean, we're talking, surely we're talking millions, like maybe not millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know how it works. It just seems colossal to me. <laughs> we've got the NHS. It's all free. So I don't understand it. I know we've got a lot of American listeners who might be able to enlighten us, but that is a concern. When you've got, I mean, if you've got one player plus a, you're allowed three, you're talking about a thousand people at the US Open who are players yeah. or team members. Yeah. That's before you get to officials, ball kids, anything else. Security, we're just talking purely about the players in this bubble. This is a massive bubble. This is the biggest bubble, I think. Surely it's the biggest any sport has ever tried because they've done footballers and, and things, but a thousand people for three weeks in one place is absolutely extraordinary. And you just got to think, like, just looking at the numbers of out of a thousand people, like, th there are going to be some positive tests, surely. Like, that's going to happen. We had it in Palermo. We've had it at the Adria Tour. You know, it, it's just going to be... I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be more surprised if we got through it with, you know, if it, all of the thousand people kept testing negative the whole time. I'd be like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But... Yeah, so I think it is a bit of a concern, you know, that, that things can be bad. And we were talking just before the pod about Grigor Dimitrov, somebody super fit and healthy, still struggling a little bit with his symptoms. I mean, he's weeks and weeks afterwards now. I mean, you've had to recover from it as well. It is not that straightforward for everybody. I think for everyone, it's different. Some people bounce back right away and say, oh, it was just like having a flu or a cold. And for other people, it takes a long time. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's... um a doctor who is dealing with post 
COVID patients. And she said there is no rhyme or reason as to who recovers properly and who doesn't. It's nothing to do with youth. It's nothing to do with fitness. It's it's just the way that your lungs react. Like some people will just have lung scarring for the rest of their life. They will never recover properly. And everybody's in this sort of range. And that's the really sort of concerning thing. And you just think, yeah, a thousand people out in New York, traveling from the, all over the world, then coming to Europe. It is, uh, you know, there is a significant amount of risk with what we're what we're taking on, which is why you can totally understand Barty and Nadal saying risk is not for me. Thanks. It's OK. I'll, I'll I'll wait for the next one. And I feel really sorry that Gregor Dimitrov had to go through everything. And he said he lost weight. I think he said he lost three kilos and he had breathing difficulties. He lost taste and he lost smell and he's finding it. And he also said that the isolation was very difficult. And that's the other thing. Tennis player, I, I, I'm going to generalize here wildly, but especially that the, the higher ranked ones are used to having people with them all the time. A coach, a fitness and conditioning, nutritionist, family, friends, you know, they used, and I told you when, when I had it, I felt that the, the isolating part was awful, even though I was in the house with my family, they couldn't, they couldn't go past the door, you know, they had to stay at the door. And I found that difficult. Dimitrov has spoken about being totally alone for over three weeks, totally owns something that I'm sure he's not used to being. And I hope it's a real eye-opener for some players because some players have said, well, yeah, but I was asymptomatic and I felt fine, I didn't get it. Others have said, well, we're fit and healthy, so it's not going to affect us. So for Dimitrov, who's still weighing up whether he will actually and can actually play the US Open, I hope it's a bit of an eye-opener that, you know, this this virus doesn't discriminate and it's attacked someone who's probably at the height of their health and fitness and they are now really struggling to come back from it. Yeah, I mean, can you get healthier and fitter than Dimitrov? I don't, is, is it possible? Probably not. I don't <laughs> is, think so. Are there more levels? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's rough. Would you go if you couldn't have insurance against it? No, no, um, absolutely. I think... Uh, you know, predominantly the situation because of the healthcare situation in in the US. I, I was wondering actually if and if it goes ahead, I'll be working on it from the UK um, for Five Live. They're not sending. Well, it, there's no media allowed. I think the US Open have very limited media. There will be their media on site, maybe US Open radio and possibly the wealthy commentators. But I was wondering whether I would have, having had it, whether I would have gone and. Uh, Possibly, yes, but it, it was a game changer having had it and knowing I've had it that I felt a bit freer to go. But then on the flip yeah. side, as I was told at the time, you know, you don't know how long you'll be immune to it for and you could get it again. And it's it's nasty enough not want not wanting to get it again. But if I hadn't had it, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't take the risk. It, whether, even if I had insurance, if I hadn't had it, I wouldn't travel to somewhere that where it's still quite rife. Absolutely not. I mean, why risk it? I, it's not worth it for... We all want to do the job we do, but it's it's just not worth it. And you just you just can't guarantee it, can you? As you say, you would definitely feel a bit more comfortable because you've had it. I don't think I have. I haven't had any tests or anything, but I don't think I have. Um, but yeah, it's just still it's still no guarantee. But I could understand definitely leaning to what towards going a bit more if you uh, knew you had it and you had antibodies for sure. <laughs> For Roland Garros, which we are planning for, and I will be in Paris should that take place, I feel very comfortable again 
because I've had, it does make traveling because you have to worry about your friends and family that you're in contact with. It does make you feel more comfortable, even though nothing is known about, as I say, if you can get it again. And But I, I think the case of Dimitri, and Andy Murray's come out, hasn't he, and said, look, if people break the bubble rules, then there should be consequences. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I really do believe they should. I'd just kick them out. If anyone breaks the rules, just kick them out. It, it, That's what they're doing in other sports. Yeah, just, just say, just a world team tennis. We talked about that with Daniel. Just get, I don't care whether it's the world number one to the world number one. Just get rid of them. Yeah, I agree. But what about, this is the question. I mean, that for me is very straightforward. And I just, I think it's madness if they don't do that. But what if it was a member of their team who popped to Manhattan because they fancied a Chipotle? <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> that must have been some craving, by the way. <laughs> uh, I was trying to think of all the things you could possibly want to go to Manhattan for. And that wouldn't be on my top 100 list, I don't no. think. Oh, no. There's a great a pharmacy there called CVS. Yes. It's open 24 hours. And this, right. this might, you're going to start looking at me really weirdly. But with the hours we work at the US Open. You'd be going to the pharmacy. At like three o'clock in the morning. Because sometimes you'd get back from Flushing Meadows at 2 a.m. And we're based in, in Manhattan, right in the center by Grand Central Station. And A, you're a little bit awake because you've had the adrenaline. You've just finished. I remember I did Monfils Federer one year when Monfils had match points. finished about two. And you're absolutely buzzing. And you probably haven't eaten for a few hours, and you know the way things go. On, you get back to Manhattan at three, and you're wide awake, and you can go shopping. <laughs> it's the most amazing thing. So I've definitely been found wandering around CVS buying things that I don't need at three o'clock in the morning. Can you can you relate to that? No, no, <laughs> not really. I just tend to go straight to bed, to be honest. Next time, if we're ever together working at the US Open, I'm taking you to CVS. Want a CVS and again. Trip. American listeners, please tell me I'm not crazy. This is a thing to do. At is this what you would go into Manhattan for? Yeah, no, but but I wouldn't break the bubble. Mm. But if one no one okay, so one of the things I will miss about not being in Manhattan this year are my nighttime trips to CVS. Right, okay. <laughs> but no, I wouldn't. No, I I don't need to go there badly enough that I would I would break a bubble. So are you saying if a team member got hungry and went into Manhattan, would you? expel the team member or are you saying do you then expel the team well do you kick out the player what do you think oh i don't i was asking you <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't yes know. yes there yes so because i think situations. no i think yes because as the player you're the em- employer right so novak djokovic employs the team he pays them they are in effect they're all adults but they are in effect his responsibility right yes and whenever you go to a tournament whoever's on your accreditation is your responsibility if somebody gets drunk and does something that is on you it your name is on their badge uh, and we're all told that really strictly you can't just give out accreditations willy-nilly to people you don't know because if they start acting up or breaking the rules like that comes back on you and you will lose privileges or you will face consequences so i kind of think yeah it should really be the same like if you want to bring three people you have to be responsible for three people you want to bring one you're responsible for one yeah no i i agree i think if if they got a hunger craving um and popped into manhattan then out and i I think if if players decide to have their own residence they then have to pay for their own secure transport whereas if you're staying in the official hotel you get the secure official transportation yeah I, I get a feeling that in the 
couple of weeks we've got leading up to it, things are going to get stricter. I think more and more rules are coming in. So they just did kind of decide this, didn't they, about the if you're staying in a house, you've got to do that. They're still sort of working it out to try and make it as secure as possible and to decide what they can actually enforce and what they can't. Because there's no point making a rule if you can't enforce it, much like in Palermo, where Donna Vekic has been talking. And and then there was a little bit of criticism because she was saying, well, it's not really a bubble here. We're doing what we want. I'm sightseeing. I'm eating dinner in town, which is just like a normal tournament. Um, and there was criticism of the tournament. But, you know, it's, it's it's tough for a tournament to book out an entire hotel and to have a secure bubble. It costs an absolute fortune to try and do that. So you just have to really ask the players to do it as best as possible. But you can't have rules if you can't enforce them. That makes no sense. So... I could understand them strongly advising you to stay in your hotel. Donna doesn't want to do that. Um, but you can't, yeah, you, you can't kind of say you have to. And well, then what? Because what if they don't? I was slightly, more than slightly, just shocked by by Donna. Look, I, it, it's frustrating for everybody and for players. And, and you know this. You travel, you, you go from a, a hotel room to the site, the hotel room to the site. It's boring, so you will take in a bit of sightseeing when you can. But these are extreme times. It's just about getting tennis back. So you've got to be sensible. And Donovic was quoted as saying, just to have some common sense in this period would be good. But in the next breath, she's talking about eating out and saying, well, there's no way I'm staying in my hotel room. I'm going out. But I, just, I mean, she, and the other thing is, I thought this was very naive because she was around the Adria tour. For the Croatia leg, she was, there was, you know, lots of pictures and, and she was there, which was great that she went to support them. But she witnessed the fallout to what took place there. Everything that tournaments have done to get tournaments just happening, for heaven's sake. And then she's sort of saying, well, yeah, well, I'm going to eat out because I want to eat out. I, I, think it's, I think it's ridiculous. Well, she said that players would go insane, didn't she, if they had to follow the rules and stay in one place and stay in a bubble. But uh, you just kind of feel like, well, then don't play then. Don't go. Like the, 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 These are the choices right now. We don't live in normal times. And, you know, I don't know what the rules have been like in Croatia, so maybe it hasn't been um, as strict. For her coming to... Palermo it might have been a little bit of a shock to the system like she doesn't want to have restrictions because as you say she was at the Adria tour there were no restrictions there but also she's massively defended the Adria tour since as well she's not really acknowledged that you know that was a, a massive problem I think she was just kind of much more defensive of kind of what what Djokovic was was trying to do but you know she's just one player out of a whole army that's going to be or that are in Palermo and that are going to be out in the states so this is going to be a real problem because people just want to play as normal and I've heard a number of players and coaches saying it's not going to be any fun at the US Open this year and it's like well yeah it's not it's going to be work you're, you're going to have no crowd and but no Manhattan. it's a grand slam but it's a grand slam the money you can earn from a grand slam the ranking points you can earn from a grand slam the effort the USTA are going to to put on this grand slam it's almost like I don't want to hear any complaints I don't want to hear anybody moaning if you don't want to go if because you're going to be bored in your hotel room don't go yeah exactly that that's it these are the choices that that there is no choice of kind of just doing what you want like they did at the Adria tour because that didn't work so yeah, you do you do kind of feel like look come on, just suck it up for a bit here because there are a lot of people involved in tournaments that are desperate for work. They need these tournaments to happen more so than the players need these tournaments to happen. And I think 
it's it's really important. That's what Nick Kyrgios was talking about on his video, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we said, a very serious video from Nick Kyrgios, and he he made his his point in it and his case. He had a little little to and fro with Borna Chorich at some point. Uh, I don't think they're going to be going. Out, they're <laughs> going to be getting together for socially distanced drinks anytime soon. But I I thought it was quite disrespectful of, of Vekic saying, "Well, in New York there'll be a bubble, so I'll respect that. But here in Paloma there isn't. Yeah, but still respect the tournament and still respect the fact there is the virus at large, and respect." what the tournament have done to make this possible. And as you say, they don't have the budget of a USDA to hire a whole hotel and et cetera, et cetera. So just be respectful. And if it means as boring as it is, and look, we're going to be off, uh, normally we'll be in Manhattan. We're going to be in the UK sort of working overnights on, on the US Open. It's not ideal, but I'm just delighted that we're going to be working and just to be part of it, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, the, the tournament in Palermo just advised, didn't they? I think they strongly advised staying in the hotel and kind of following a routine that would look like a bubble. And it's not a strict bubble. There are kind of tourists in the hotel as well. So it's not totally locked down. But I think, um, yeah, if you're reluctant to even try... It doesn't does it, it doesn't really read very well, does it? So and also, if you take the risks, uh, and as you say, it, it was advised this day. And if you think, well, it's only advised if you took the risk and went out to a restaurant and you caught it, then she wouldn't be able to take part in the U.S. Open bubble or anything else because she would have the illness. No. So that that's the other thing. And and your team and and a lot of people have spoken about. I think Sasha Zverev has spoken about. He's talked about his. Um, Trial period with David Frey says, great, personality's the same, really getting on, we're going to stay together for the rest of this year and see what happens. In terms of who travels with him, if he goes to the US Open, because he was still slightly, it's not ideal, um, he would have to think about it because, say, Alexander Zverev Sr. Is, is older and he's had health problems before. So it's not just you're thinking about yourself, you've got to think about members of your team as well. Oh, yes, I would hope that, Alex... Zverev Senior doesn't go. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't seem like... I mean, it's difficult. It's a difficult decision. You want to do your job. You want to do right yep, by yep. your player, your son, of course. But, you know, I think anybody who has any sort of, um, you know, his, medical history that can make them even remotely vulnerable, it's it's a tennis tournament. Come on, this is not life and death. This is the, the two very different things. Uh, and I do think that... I, I'm sure that people will be, will be wise to that. Yeah, no, I hope so. Before we leave... America, because we're going to dip away from America. Emily, who has been our voice on deplaning, yes. you asked, which I thought I thought was a ridiculous question you posed last week, which was instead of boarding, is it planing? Like, even though I've never heard of deplaning, I knew a hundred percent you were never going to be asked to plane. What, what does well, yeah. that even mean? I know plane. that, but if you deplane, then you you have to plane at some no, point you don't because you can only deplane after you've you planed. Have different words; they don't have to be a version of the same word for one thing to do another thing. Yeah, but your deplane is your de something. Yeah, but d- you see no, what I mean? d- don't now. Don't try and sort of spin this <laughs> and turn it into me thinking, "Am I crazy?" Like, what's the not verdict? to do? Well, I just think she thinks you're crazy. She didn't say it quite like that, Emily. I know you're very polite in it. She said it's boarding and not planing, right? But then you deplane. But then <laughs> it was interesting. Um, we're part of the Tennis Channel podcast network, and we submit the podcast, and there's sometimes promos and bits and pieces. And we were actually asked if if we meant deplaning instead of deplanning. Yes. 
Well, they didn't know what we were talking about. Because it looks but, weird written down because it's probably because, one of those words that it probably isn't in the American dictionary and it probably isn't written down ever. It's just said. Emily, this is another job for you. Is it? Is it in your dictionary? Because, I mean, I'd never heard of it. I still, even though we got the American Airlines email with it, I just, it's not a thing. I, I still can't think it's a thing. Uh, but no, you board and you don't plane. I can't believe I'm even having to say that. Um, Madrid, we must mention Madrid. It was talked about. The Spanish government advised against it. The tournament tried. The tournament will not happen. Yeah, it's pretty tough once the government say you probably shouldn't do it. It's it's a bit of a... It's, it's tough to come back from that. I don't think... It's a bit of a red if light. If they had managed it? to go ahead with it after that, that is too good. Well, the government aren't on board, but this is what we're doing. Well, we're going to give it a go because I know quarantine's been put back in with people going back from Spain to the UK, but we thought we'd give it a go anyway. But it yeah, it just became untenable. Yeah, and it was fairly quick, wasn't it, between that announcement and then the announcement of uh, it, it being cancelled um, yeah I mean again you asked me at the beginning which was the biggest surprise if you had told me a month ago that Madrid was going to get cancelled I would have said oh that is a bit of a surprise because it kind of seemed like things in Europe were looking much more we, we were much more concerned about America with Washington and Cincinnati and US Open of course we were thinking okay that seems if those were cancelled you'd kind of understand it but with Europe it looked a lot more positive um, but then, you know, things are going up again. Everything's going up in the UK. It's going up in France, it's going up in Spain. Um, and yeah, they didn't like, want a tennis tournament. Like the US Open bubble with Cincinnati, would you bubble the clay? Bubble the clay? Mm. Uh, what, play in play one Rome place? At, play Rome at Roland Garros. Play Rome at Roland Garros. Well, now that there's only one tournament before Roland Garros, one imagines that's a consideration. Would you not think? Just to limit the travel, get everybody I'm to come still... from the US to Paris, quarantine there, and then we play Roman Paris and, and Roland Garros. I mean, I don't, I haven't heard anything. Uh, my gut feeling would is that it, it, it wouldn't happen and maybe it's too late for it to happen. But I guess Bubbles, World Team Tennis, Battle of the Brits, Bubbles uh, have shown to work. If Small you... Bubbles. Okay, small bubbles. If you, yeah, we're still waiting to see the Cincy US the Open thousand bubble. people bubble <laughs> before you get to security and and everything. Because remember, security might... and people who are working on site, um, they, they'll all be going home. They're not bubbling. Well, that's the problem. And I know there was a little something else that went on with Australia. They say that people who came into Australia were then put into a hotel and obviously in the hotel there were security guards and apparently there were some shenanigans going on there as well but then the security guards <laughs> apparently the security guards who were keeping an eye on the people who were quarantining who may have had COVID then went off home yeah into Australia into Victoria into Melbourne and now they've gone into a strict strict lockdown yeah, it, this is where it's just so tough, isn't it, to manage? You know, you can't keep all the ball people, and I mean, the officials oh, yes. will bubble, like in terms of the umpires and line judges. I think they will bubble, but uh, as I you mentioned, bubble ball people. You've got to bubble ball. There's a lot of ball you? people to bubble. Yeah, but it's it's better bubbling a lot of ball people than risking them going off, coming back, and the whole tournament's over. What about the bus drivers? security oh it's I'd, just a lot of I'd people bubble every, i'd bubble yeah, everyone but they're not that's the thing mm. so i think i don't know i think 
yeah, maybe you're right. If they'd had a bit more notice, say Madrid was off the cards a bit earlier on and they knew that the schedule was going to be sort of Cincinnati and New York, they can bubble mm. that. And then they could have looked at maybe bubbling Roman and Roland Garros. I think that could have been quite interesting. But yeah, you now are adding an extra country of travel for, again, okay, not a thousand people because they aren't all going to get into Rome, but hundreds of people are going to have to do that hop between mm. between the two. So yeah, I don't know. I like the idea of a clay court bubble. I, do you know what? Mm. I like the idea of tennis. That's what, that's what, yeah. that's what I like. Well, we're very excited that we're going to be working together on Cincinnati, ATP Tennis Radio, back up and running, ready to go. Um, it's going to be overnight, but we're fine. We're, yeah, our podcast might sound funny during that time. Oh. Because we're going to be recording them at it's like three in the morning yeah. or something. Yeah, we're going to do, do middle of the night. Might I'll, not be I'll making be sense. I'll be dreaming of going to CVS doing my shopping. <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be sat with you in the UK doing the podcast. We had some, there's a couple of things from listeners, if you don't mind. Hello, listeners. Uh, and Glyn, remember last week, Glyn, um, question about the changes between men's and differences between men's and women's tennis. It was... Um, the serve. He had a question about serving. Yes. And, and it, it sounded like he has been quite negative in the words he was using about the women's serve, which he was saying that basically it's not very good. Well... He's actually got back in touch Hi, to say, uh, it wasn't my intent to be harsh about WTA serving. I used to coach low-level women's college tennis and I want the sport to get better. It's disappointing that WTA players seem resigned about serving and he believes that it's um, a really great opportunity for WTA players waiting to be taken and rise to the next level to really work on their serve and then throws in um, Graf and Navratilova. It just throws out the question, did they do sports with a throwing motion when they were younger because they have two of the best serves in the history of the sport? That I don't know, but there are always going to be exceptions as well. If you just happen to be working with a coach who's really good at teaching serves, you're going to get a good serve. That's that's kind of how it goes as well. Like, um, it's a combination of the coaches not coaching the serve very well. Serve's the most difficult shot to coach technically, um, as I'm sure Glenn will be well aware. Um, and when I say most difficult shot, I mean by a long way. It is incredibly challenging in comparison to the other shots. And you tell you what, you work out how difficult a serve is when you're trying to get a six-year-old to do it. <laughs> You've done the forehand. Forehand was fine. You've done the backhand. A little tricky. Bit of resistance there. Took a couple of weeks longer than it did with the forehand. <laughs> you get to the serve and you're like, what is this shot? You've got, you've got to ask them to throw the ball with their non-dominant hand up. You've got feet doing... You've got to keep their feet still. That's hard enough because they throw the ball all over the place. You've got a racket swinging in one direction, the body moving in the opposite direction. You've got to hit it in the air. Well, I mean, to be fair, you wouldn't ask a six-year-old to jump. To I was going to say, <laughs> I'm quite ambitious. Start slow. <laughs> no, but one, maybe not six years old, but once it all starts coming together a little later on, you do realise quite how challenging it is. And if you mess that up when you're young, it's very difficult to recover, uh, to be honest. If you have the throwing motion that I talked about in other sports, you will naturally have the most crucial part of the serve together. Then it's just much more about rhythm and timing and the ball toss. If you don't have that from a young age, it just becomes very difficult to kind of bring that in. I don't know if Martina and Steffi like did a lot of overarm throwing when they were younger they might have just had very good coaches on their serve when they were younger they might have been more focused on it they might have practiced it more when they were younger I mean honestly it's it's an 
one of the most frustrating things working in British tennis is players just do not practice their serve enough, but they should be doing it by themselves most days every week. Um, you know, it, it, you don't need a coach to be doing it, to be getting the reps in and to build up the strength in the practice. So, you know, you have that as an issue as well. So I don't know, it's the one closed part of a very open sport, you know, whereas if you play golf, everything's closed. So practicing on your own is quite a normal thing. But with tennis, you kind of, everybody assumes you just always need a partner. You always need a coach. You always need somebody else there to do a session. And actually you don't, you can just go and practice your serve. Um, and even in lockdown, when you couldn't get to a court, you can practice your ball toss. If anyone out there wants to practice the ball toss, best thing, well, you kind of have to have a netball, <laughs> netball goal nearby. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> No, sorry, I realise that's maybe not as easy. Do you as, know anybody uh, that has a netball post in their back garden? Well, yes. Now, this is the thing: is that most of the girls that I coach um, would, you know, a lot of them have a netball post at home. And anyway, you throw really? the ball up and down through the. Who netball has post. a netball post in their back garden? I don't know. A lot of people. I had one when I was younger. I used to play netball at school. I was in the team. Never had a netball post at home. Well, maybe it would have been better netball... if you had a netball post. All right. <laughs> People with drive have a netball so, post. All right. Um, so <laughs> basketball you, works too for our Americans. So listeners. if you have a netball, so what are you? Sorry, what are you doing with a netball post in your back garden? You just stand underneath it and you you toss the ball so that it goes up through the hoop and back down through the hoop so that you keep it straight. Because that's the hardest thing to learn is how to keep a ball tossed straight. Once you can keep it straight, then oh, you can put it where you want. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's quite a good. So you want it to go straight up, straight down. That's quite useful too. The other way. The one, to, the way that you normally do it, obviously, if you don't have a hoop, um, with uh, kids and and um, well, with anyone learning really, is you put a little circle on the floor, so you can do that with a hoop. So if if you're working with sort of five year olds, six year olds, you do it with a hoop, so you, they have to throw the ball straight up, and it's got to land in the hoop uh, underneath them, and then you can make it a smaller target if they're a bit older, but it's definitely much more beneficial if you're kind of a performance player and you're older to try and do it on a basketball hoop or a netball hoop because it's about what happens at the top of the bounce, uh, sorry, the top of the toss and that it doesn't move there because that's where you're wanting it to kind of stay straight. That is a very useful tip. Oh, thank you very much. Well, unless, but also, you know, use common sense. If you're hitting a kick serve, this is irrelevant. So just a normal first serve ball toss. This is, that's what I we're think- doing here. That's a very useful tip. I was, I was gonna. I think that's. I think I want. I was gonna talk about Federer and Pasta, and playing tennis on a roof, because. Well, if we just jump back to that quickly, because I was just gonna say, if you if you don't have a netball post or a basketball, find a hoop, couple of rooftops. Say you wanted. <laughs> that's a whole another level, but if you wanted to t- say do it with your boys, if you wanted to teach yeah. them with the ball ball yeah. toss, you, if you've got a hula hoop or anything that is remotely round like that, you just yeah. hold it above their heads. So that's what I would do with the little ones. So I'd start off with something on the ground. So they've got to throw it up and it's got to land on something. And then I'd have some sort of hula hoop and I'd just hold it up and they've got to throw it up and down through the through the thing. So you don't have to have a post. I don't think we have a hula hoop or a post. A bucket. Can I use a bucket? No, it's got to have a hole in it. Why do you have to have a hole in it? As long as it's, it's going... Go... Yeah, but if it's going into the bucket, it's obviously going the right trajectory. Yeah, so... but it's got, to, it's got to go in through the hoop and down through the hoop without touching anything, without touching the sides. It's got to go dead straight. I could cut a hole at the bottom of the bucket. So it's a you tube. Could, you, if you, yeah, exactly. That's fine. 
I mean, okay. that's that's tough. I mean, unless you've got a massive bucket, that is tough. Well, I'm not sure how my in-laws are going to feel about me hacking up their buckets to put a hole in them to try to practice some ball tossing practice with a couple of five-year-olds. Uh, oh. Honestly, it's a really good tip. And because ball tossing is really difficult to teach. And so I just kind of give this task to the parents and say, off you pop. Do that three times a week. That would be excellent, thanks. And they what, do. the and parents they do it. or the children? Well, the parents what? have to hold the hula hoop. Oh, I thought you were making the parents go and practice ball tossing. And yeah. I thought, well, or they've got to video it dedication. for me because I need to see the evidence. So you done. actually want me to video this as well? No. So I, I feel, I feel <laughs> no, I was just I'm on holiday. I'm on holiday and I feel like you've just set me a task. So yeah, okay. I'd like to see it. Okay, I'm going to find a hoop or a bucket and I'll cut a hole in it or something. Yeah. And I'm going to video them throwing the ball up and then down. Perfect. Right? Yeah. Is that it? Absolutely. And if you can do okay. that 10 times in a row, you should find that you've got a nice consistent ball toss. Oh, okay. Well, we've got no time to talk about Federer rooftops and pasta because I have to go and do ball tossing. Yes. Crack on. <laughs> Thank you for my homework. Yeah. I want to see the video. <laughs> well, I will report back next week as to how my ball tossing has gone. Thanks. Can't wait to see it. 